So the readings from Mark chapter 14, and you'll find the reading um, in the Church Bibles on page 1019. Mark 14, verses 1 to 26. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me? It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives.
Thank you, Ralph. What does it mean to waste your money? How you decide that is really the heart of this conflict in verse 4. Why this waste of perfume, the religious leaders say? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Connects to a, a deeper question. What does it mean to waste your life? All of us would agree it's possible to waste your money. Last year, one of my kids clicked away on uh, on our Kindle Fire, installed loads of stupid games for £3. The price soared unbelievably quickly. Thankfully, we got most of that money back, and we had a long conversation about passwords afterwards. We'd agree also, I'm sure, that it's possible to waste your life. I know someone started drinking heavily at 15, He dropped out of school at 16, couldn't hold down a job for years. His health declined over a decade and a half, eventually had a heroin overdose and gave himself brain damage. It is possible to waste things. But what makes something a waste? Did this woman waste her money? Jesus ties the answer to that question to his death. In verse 8, she did what she could, he says. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Raises the question did Jesus waste his life that he gave? What is your attitude to Jesus' death? What value do you put? On his sacrifice. Mark wants us to value Jesus' death. This woman is an example of doing just that. She literally pours away a year's wages, 17,000 pounds. Now, we're in a church in central Cambridge, so the average wage here is probably um, much higher than that, actually. 20, 25, 30,000 pounds, perhaps. Some individuals amongst us will be doing better, 70, 80, 100 grand a year. Maybe there's some amongst us pushing more than that, quarter of a mil or or upwards. Imagine taking that much money and pouring it away to fund a massive Easter celebration one year. One reckless act of homage to Jesus' name to honour him and celebrate his death. The question is, is that reckless to do that? Sometimes people do spend a year's wages to celebrate things. Weddings. Uh, So many of us happily shell out, well, we shell out thousands, at least, tens of thousands to celebrate weddings. Uh, Maybe a, a 40th or a 50th birthday when someone pulls together decades worth of friends and acquaintances. This woman takes the money you might spend on a wedding or on a major milestone birthday and she chooses it to use it instead to honour Jesus. Now, is that a waste? What does it mean to waste your money? 
How do you value Jesus' death? Whether we wanted to or not, none of us here could um, honour Jesus in the way that this woman does uh, because of what Jesus points out in verse 7. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. We don't have Jesus physically here anymore. He has died, risen again, and ascended to his Father in heaven. So what this woman does is unique in history, uh, necessarily so. But Mark puts it in his gospel to prompt us to ask the question, how do we feel about what she does? If you do something uh, costly and self-sacrificial for someone else, it is painful if it doesn't get noticed. Imagine blowing 30 grand on a wedding only for one of the couple to be jilted at the altar. Now that's painful on all sorts of levels, but think about the person who paid for the wedding for a moment and how it feels to them. It's even more painful if you give something costly only for it to be called a waste. I know a guy who blew most of his student loan helping a homeless man in London. He was well-intentioned, but it was only in his third year that he discovered the man was spending all of those gifts on drugs. He'd given away almost all of his student loan to fund someone's drug habit. Well-intentioned, but what a waste. Think how painful that was to realise how naive he'd been. It is even more painful if you do something sacrificial and costly and in response people tell you off and judge you in a judgmental way. Years ago, someone told me a story about a missionary who was trying to reach out to uh, working women on the street in South America. These women had all suffered a a huge amount at uh, the hands of men. Usually they came from homes with abusive fathers. Uh, They'd spent their lives um, with men buying their bodies. Uh, Most were homeless. This missionary received an inheritance from one of his family members who died. And he was thinking about what to do with it. He picked three of the working women and booked a hotel penthouse. Now, these women were used to men bringing them to hotel rooms. But when they got there, they discovered that this missionary had used his money to gift them a week of staying in this luxurious hotel to be pampered. The penthouse was full of teddy bears. Uh, They were weighted on hand and foot. He had dinner with them and then left them to it, to their special treat. Shortly afterward, that missionary was rebuked by some local church leaders. There were so many more effective ways you could have spent that money, they said to him. A soup kitchen, maybe another missionary, etc., etc., all sorts of different things they could have done. Now, how do you think that guy felt? That was his money that had come to him personally. And he just wanted to help some of these women whom had had such difficult lives that he cared about greatly. Now that story, I've got to say, is third-hand. It came to me. Some of the details may be a bit inaccurate, um, but I have good reason to believe that the the essence of it um, is factual. What happens here, though, in Mark 14, is the story told by the eyewitnesses 
who saw and knew Jesus personally. Think about how this woman must feel. This perfume was worth a year's wages. It is so much money. Surely you don't do something like that without some level of forethought. You don't spend that much money and use it on a whim, do you? She was pouring out her money, literally, because she was pouring out her heart. She loved Jesus. She was deeply grateful to him for something. She saw the sacrifices that he made for others in his ministry, and she wanted to express appreciation and support for him. And the response, verse 4, that comes to that, why this waste of perfume? could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Don't you care about the poor? How thoughtless. You're a callous and cruel person to use your money in that way. They called it a waste. They were indignant. They grumbled against her. They confronted her about what she did. How must she have felt given how costly that gift was to her personally. That must have been very painful criticism to receive at that moment. Her gift was outrageously, embarrassingly large. And that's why the religiously righteous reacted to her in the way that they did. If you value Jesus and his death highly, sometimes your love for him Uh, And the good works that you do in gratitude to him will be undervalued and misunderstood. When King David brought the Ark of the Lord back to Jerusalem in in 2 Samuel 6, this is what he did. Wearing a linen ephod, which is basically underpants, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. Uh, While he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. This woman is in good company. Throughout the Bible, those who love God throw themselves at him in gratitude and love. Uh, They're prepared to give so much to show their gratitude to him uh, that it's embarrassing because they feel so grateful for what he's done to them. That's what David was like and that's what this woman is like in Mark 14. Value Jesus' death. What do you value? One of the lessons from this story, surely, is that you can tell what someone really values by following the money. This woman values Jesus, that's clear, um, but her embarrassingly costly expression of love for him is also what tips Judas over the edge and reveals that he never really valued Jesus at all. Verse 9, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests, 
to betray Jesus to them. These incidents are linked together by Mark. He sandwiches this woman's gift in verses 3 to 9 between the plot to kill Jesus in verses 1 to 2 and 10 to 11. Throughout his gospel, Mark sandwiches stories together uh, in that way to show there's a connection between those those kind of stories. Uh, Someone once described Mark as a great buffet, the great buffet of the gospel, uh, which got slightly more of a laugh at the first service, but it's okay. She gives a a year's wages worth of perfume to honour him. Judas receives four months' wages worth of silver to betray him. She must have been so grateful to Jesus to do what she does. Judas must have been so full of cynicism and anger to do what he did. And look at Jesus' response to those who sit in judgment on the woman in verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. That's actually a really, really useful question as I've reflected on it in the last week. Jesus has an amazing ability to get to the heart of an issue with a simple question. Why are the religious leaders bothering her? What does it really matter to them if she chooses to use her money in this way? Why is this something that gets under Judas's skin in the way that it does? Think back to that story of King David. Why was Michal so annoyed by David's public expression of love for the Lord? Do you feel annoyed when people express their emotions while singing to God in church? Do you feel irritated when people pray with feeling in front of you? Do you feel frustrated when people embarrass themselves for Christ in the children's work or the youth work or an all-age service. When other people are prepared to spend their money or spend their time or spend their dignity to serve Christ because they love him, does that get under your skin? And if it does, why? There's such a spirit of judgmentalism here. Um, Where does it come from? Why do the religious leaders or Judas care so much if this woman chooses to express herself in this way? The great Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, said this, the spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders is unhappily only too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. There is never lacking a generation of people who depreciate what they call extremes in religion and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ... They can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He is beside himself. He is out of his mind. He is a fanatic. He is an enthusiast. He is righteous over much. He is an extreme man. In short, they regard it as waste. On his way out of church this morning from the first service, Andrew Fellows told me 
that since the Reformation, evangelicals have been called enthusiasts in a negative way um, uh, for the last 400 years. So apparently it's a very common uh, word to use. People in this city spend tens or even hundreds of thousands of pounds on degrees. Some are happy to invest huge time and emotion in arguing for or against big institutions like the European Union or other things. Others wave their arms around, shout, paint themselves, take off their clothes in support for a football team or a rugby squad, even ones that won't win anything. And we accept those things as natural. It is okay to be enthusiastic and invested and spend your money and embarrass yourself for the things of the world. Spend tens of thousands on a football team. You have a healthy work-life balance, obviously. Spend tens of thousands on the church. You're an extremist. It's perfectly normal to knock on people's doors to talk about a political idea that you've read about and like. It's fundamentalist to knock on people's doors to talk about Jesus Christ, the person that you've met who has changed your life. Why? Where do those attitudes come from? And if you recognize that at all in yourself, I've got to say there's a degree to which sometimes I recognize that attitude in me. And the people Jesus is, is speaking against are exactly the kind of people like me, religious leaders who look down on others for caring greatly about him. I'm exactly the sort of person that uh, he warns uh, as someone who works for a church. If you recognize that in yourself at all at any point, Jesus asks us this question, why? Why would I have that attitude? Value Jesus' death. And then, much more briefly, depend on Jesus' death. See how far Judas goes in his false profession of faith. He was one of Jesus' chosen twelve. He walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. Uh, Not just that, he was given responsibility amongst them. He was in charge of the money. But in the end, he turned out to be a traitor. Look at the context that Jesus chooses to address that fact. Verse 18. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, Jesus replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. On the outside, Judas Judas looked like just all of the other disciples. If anything, he was a specially favored disciple. He was one of the 12 apostles. And along with the rest of them, he outwardly protested his allegiance and asked, surely you don't mean me, said Judas, along with the rest of them. If ever there was someone who you looked at and thought, yeah, this guy's safe, he's secure, okay? He's part of what's going on, okay? He's saved. It would have been him. He's got everything there. But inside, that cynicism about Jesus, that frustrated, angry reaction to seeing someone else's love for Jesus poured out, that tipped him over the edge. 
to finally betray Jesus for money. Why would he respond like that? That is a response that rises from a hard heart that doesn't depend on Jesus' death. That's the context that Jesus chooses to introduce the Lord's Supper in. Every time as Christians that we come to take bread and wine uh, together, it is right that we remember this story and right that we ask uh, ask ourselves, Lord, do you mean me? What is going on inside my heart? Am I trusting you now? My assurance as a Christian does not stem from my status at church. Uh, None of us, okay, are one of the apostles. All of us are lower status than Judas in that regard. Um, It doesn't even stem from our outward appearance of godliness. No one could have guessed it was Judas. They all struggled to know who it was. No one who looked at Judas could tell he was a traitor. Rather, I should ask myself, is there a a self-righteousness inside? Is there an anger against Jesus that comes from that? A kind of bitterness that's arising? Is there a spirit of judgmentalism when I look at others and their love for Christ that betrays a heart that doesn't really depend on the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus provokes exactly that kind of self-reflection amongst his closest friends. And then he does this in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Just as Jesus' friends depend on food to live, so their eating that meal symbolized depending on Jesus' body and blood for life. And I take it that from what Jesus says, that it is his body and blood in a very real sense. The bread and wine are Jesus' body and blood. That's what he says. But it can't be the case physically, because Jesus isn't actually dead yet at the time. He's standing in front of them. Unless he had a kind of a bread knife and kind of took part of him off, and so, which is not what happened. Just eating the bread and wine as well can't do you any good without trusting Jesus. Judas was there, and he ate the bread, and he drank the wine. Fat lot of good it did him. So I take it that when Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood, he means that really in a spiritual sense. So if by eating and drinking I am trusting in him, taking my self-righteousness and sacrificing it for his gift of righteousness to me, then I really am nourished and fed spiritually. But by that same measure, unless I spiritually eat by depending on Jesus in my heart, then I'm not nourished by the meal at all. It could be nothing but an empty gesture as it was for Judas. Verse 25 shows that this practice of reflecting on whether we really do trust in Jesus and then feeding on him spiritually with bread and wine should point us forward to his return and the world to come. That verse 25 says this, Jesus says, truly I tell you, 
I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We began with two questions prompted by how the religious leaders reacted to that woman's outpouring of love and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to waste your money? What does it mean to waste your life? In light of what we see here in this story, we can flip those questions the other way. What do you most value? And therefore, what is the best way to use your money? Or deeper, what or who do you most value? So what is the best way to use your life? If you look at someone else and see themselves pouring themselves out for the Lord Jesus Christ in a costly way, and there's any sense of indignation or frustration at that that arises within, why? Is that the case? Why? I've got to confess that I find it so easy to spend so... I spent so much money and time and effort in pursuit of education, in pursuit of advancing my career or my status. I spent so much time trying to make money in different ways that this passage has prompted me to ask the question, who do I most care about? And therefore, what will I do with my resources? Where will I invest not just my money, but my life? I'm going to say a quick prayer. None of that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you for the example of this woman here who loved him and was outrageously grateful to him. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for her costly gift that she poured out on him. We praise you, Father, for that example to us. And we thank you not only that we can value Jesus' death rightly, but also that we can depend on him. We thank you so much for um, the expression of our dependence on him we can have by taking bread and wine together, which we'll be able to do in the coming weeks and months. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us this week to reflect on what and who we most value. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.